when I teach a course on American exceptionalism, the first question I ask before we introduce each other, before we know each other's names, I say, write down on a piece of paper, where and when does America begin? What is the origin of America? And we get all kinds of answers. Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. My guest today is Abram Van Engen. Abram is a professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis, the author of two very well-received books. Today, we're discussing his second book, City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism. As a disclaimer, Abram and I both wrote our doctoral dissertations on the Puritans, and we might get nerdy for a couple minutes because we were having a real conversation, and real conversations have a life of their own. We explore Abram's research on American exceptionalism. That may not have an obvious connection to your work or vocation, but as you listen, please notice the origin stories that he discusses, then ask about yours. What origin story do you tell yourself about your career? And how does that shape the way you see yourself in your work? Today, my guest is Abram Van Engen. I've been happy to know you for, you know, a decade, maybe a tiny bit more. Abram is an author. He's written two very well-regarded major works, Yale University Press. They're both about the Puritans and their effect on America. Abram is a, an English professor, and so he, you know, maybe somewhat strangely, uh, writes about history of thought a great deal. Of course, the Puritans had some style, so we could, you know, we could appeal to that, and they generated a lot of novels. But just tell us for a minute, how is it that you're a professor of English at a major university, and you write about the Puritans. We'll get to what you write, but just explain what you do for, for a few minutes. Sure. So I went to graduate school to study literary theory and 20th century poetry. That was what I promised to study. And I ended up uh, writing a dissertation on 17th century Puritans. And How part, of the <laughs> part of the reason for that was that the, uh, the American list that I had to read for my major field exams started uh, in the 17th century and moved forward to Toni Morrison. And as I was reading the 17th century stuff, and in particular the Puritans, I thought, these, these folks are interesting. I'm seeing things here that I don't know that people have been talking about. Um, and I talked to my advisor, who was not a Christian, and uh, she said, you know, I, I, she knew I went to Calvin. She said, you should probably write on the Puritans because they're not crazy and neurotic to you. <laughs> right. Like you, there's some basic uh, understanding going on here and yes. maybe you've got a leg up and, and maybe you should write on the Puritans. So to her credit, I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. And I do find them intellectually interesting. Yeah. And so I started writing on the Puritans. You, you know, uh, we talked about this a long time ago, that's almost exactly what happened to me hmm. with my dissertation. I had a total atheist who asked me in a class at Yale where your works are published. He said, how do you know so much about this? And I said, well, I have an MDiv. He said, so are you like a, he didn't say this, but are you a Puritan fanboy? I said, no, no, no. I've got yeah. critical distance. Yeah. But I'm kind of like a grand nephew times seven. <laughs> and they're maybe my progenitors somewhat, and so I appreciate them yeah. even as I critique them, which is exactly what you do yeah. in your works. You yeah. appreciate the Puritans. Yeah. Why don't you say a word? Let's just imagine that our readers only know the Puritans are fun-hating, <laughs> witch-hunting, killjoys kill yeah. that are against bowling. Yeah. 
So give us a summary. Yeah. So, so my first book is about the role of sympathy in Puritan theology and how it shaped their concept of community. So basically, the long and the short of it is the Puritans had a very robust sense of sympathy and its importance to daily life, to community, to preaching, to all the kinds of things that go on within a community. And uh, what I was noticing in their works was that most people were sort of thinking of them as very intellectual, which they are. Which they are, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, at, at, you know, and very rational creatures who were pretty hard-hearted and pretty uh, rigorous uh, and... Uh, you know, and, and part of this comes out of actually not the Puritans themselves, but what was made of the Puritans in the 19th century. So Hawthorne really produced this vision of Puritanism as stoic, unfeeling. Unforgiving. And the Calvinists themselves were, were sort of produced in, in this way in the 19th century. So the first book can, that can I wrote... Just pause. Were produced. You mean were reproduced, reproduced or repackaged yeah. repackaged right? this yep. way that's right yeah and that was a that was in many ways an intentional move by some folks who were trying to distance themselves from the calvinism of their forebears um, exactly and so i was just trying to recover the sense of uh, a puritanism that was based in for example verses about the love of the brethren or the sympathy you find in Hebrews right, or other places and how important that was to them and how it shaped so many aspects of their culture. Yeah. So as I recall, your uh, sympathy can be misunderstood. Yeah. So as I recall, you may need to correct me, in your first book, you sometimes use the word uh, fellow feeling, is that yeah. right? Yeah. As a, as a synonym for sympathy. Yeah. That is to say, not sympathy like, oh, you poor baby, mm -hmm. but um, I resonate with you at a deep level. Your life is my right. life. A, a very communitarian approach, you might say today. Yeah. So not pity, which right. is a different sort of thing. Right. Um, and empathy, that word, which is closely related, wasn't invented until the right. 20th century. So sympathy is a different sort of word. And one of the cool things I found doing research for this book is that the translations of Calvin's works into English stumble on the word sympathy itself, because in a certain sense, Calvin was bringing into Latin the Greek sympathy. Like even in his Latin treatises, he leaves the Greek for sympathy mm -hmm. uh, because it was so important to him. And in English, they didn't know what to do with it because they didn't have the word sympathy yet when they first started translating Calvin. And so they would talk about fellow-like feeling and so forth. And so what I was trying to get at, and there's a longer intellectual history we hear we don't need to go into, but a lot of folks trace the origins of sentimental thought and um, this sort of imaginative identification with others to moral sense philosophers and a sort of secular tradition coming out of the Scottish, Scottish Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to say is the Scottish Enlightenment itself was coming out of a prior Calvinist and theological background that emphasized precisely these things of sympathetic identification, fellow-like feeling. And actually that goes all the way it back goes to back Calvin. To, yeah, well, it goes back to the Gospel of John. Well, right. Calvin, <laughs> so Calvin's it, it comes up in Calvin because he's he's commentaries right. on, on the Bible, where right. it is in the Bible. So yeah. And yeah. Hebrews and so forth. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, if people are listening to this uh, podcast, they they want to know about a city on a hill. Yeah. So we let's get to yeah. let's get to the American exceptionalism. Yeah. Um, and I liked your first book a lot. I mean, you know. So I'm glad to have you here. Um, let me ask you this question. The, the subtitle of your book, which I have open in front of me, I had the joy of kind of re-skimming it this afternoon. CD on a Hill, that's the title, which comes from Jesus. The history or a history of American exceptionalism. So most basic question, is America exceptional? Hmm. Caveat, 
all nations are acceptable. Croatia, mm. exceptional. Croatia is exceptional. Mongolia is exceptional. Singapore mm. is exceptional. <clears throat> Namibia is exceptional, right? Is America exceptionally exceptional? <laughs> well, I guess the first question is, what do you mean by exceptional? Yeah, right? go ahead. Um, it's your book, so you get this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's three ways that America has typically been understood to be exceptional. Mm -hmm. um, one of those ways is as a model nation. So we create a certain model that we say other nations desire to have. Uh, but we don't necessarily uh, feel ourselves obligated to bring it to them. We just create so here it is. Model. It's beautiful. It's a city so, on a so hill. So it's a sort of passive American yeah, exception. Right. That's one form that it takes traditionally. And that's where city on a hill comes in. Right. Maybe the most. You right? establish this thing. Others look at people it. People will be drawn to it. Yeah. Invent a refrigerator. People may want refrigerators. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The second form, which really takes off more during World War II and the Cold War era, is the sense of a redeemer nation. So it's, it's our obligation to take the benefits or whatever we have that makes us exceptional, whatever we think that might be. It's our obligation and responsibility to take that to the rest of the world. And that would be exceptional if we could redeem other nations. Right. It would be quite exceptional. It would exceptional. be exceptionally <laughs> exceptional. Yes. All right. Number and three. And then underlying both of those, the so model nation, redeemer nation, is this certain sense of religion that often accompanies not mm -hmm. always, but often accompanies it. And so that's more the sense of a chosen nation. So that God has set apart this particular nation among all the nations of the world to have a particular role in human history. Which is part of manifest destiny. Right. Uh, so it's our destiny. God wants us to take this entire continent. I'm not saying that was all caught. Right. I'm not saying that the Puritans had that in mind. Right. They had no idea how big right. America was. They probably knew about 50 miles yeah. Or, or maybe 100 miles for a while, but certainly Manifest Destiny, which you talk about a little bit in the book. I do. I do touch on that. And, yeah. it, and it has a downside to it. It does have a downside, yes. Right. These other people are interlopers, and so we can yeah. take their land. And uh, part of what I talk about in the book is the way the Puritans are often co-opted into these particular tales right. of American exceptionalism. And they, they did, um, they were catalytic. But in many they, ways, yeah. but it wasn't their idea. It was what was done with some of their well, ideas. Well, I mean, one basic thing to think about is that they existed before the United States did. Yes, right. So in what mm -hmm. sense did they think of yeah. this nation as exceptional? Now, you just said something <laughs> really important. And uh, when we were talking beforehand, I, I told you that pages two and three, yeah. the beginning of the book, kind of align with almost the last page of the book, page yeah. 272. And so you give a bunch of possible answers to the question, where did America get started? Yeah. And three of them are political. Uh, they have to do with documents like the Constitution uh, and the Declaration of Independence. They also have to do, I'm not going to do all eight of these. I'm going to let you do some of them. They also have to do with war. The Revolutionary War could be the start. Or uh, the firm establishment of America. That's how it started, you know, post-Constitution and maybe even post the Ten, Amendment, Ten Amendments. Um, but we can also look at people. And the Puritans are viewed as the first people, and they weren't. Right. Why do we count them as the first people? Can you uh, tell us maybe briefly who came first? Sure. Um, yeah. And there's several answers to that. There's and then why do we count? Yeah. Why do we pretend the Puritans were the first Americans? I think what your question is getting at, it, and it is really important to, to understand, is that American exceptionalism. One of the ways to understand it, an important way to understand it, is that whenever it shows up, it is a history. It is a history of the country, and 
It's a way of telling. It's, it's a way. It's so not on the one the hand, history. It's a history. Just want to make right. sure you didn't say it's, the history. Right. It's not the you history. It's a history. history. Right. So you never get claims to be an exceptional nation without an implicit narrative about how our nation mm -hmm. began right. or mm -hmm. what America is. And so then it raises the question: Well, where did it begin? Where and when did it begin? So I ask that question when I teach a course on American exceptionalism. The first question I ask before we introduce each other, before we know each other's names, I say, write down on a piece of paper. Where and when does America begin? What is the origin of America? And uh, most students say. And we get all kinds of answers. Okay. Uh, we get Native Americans. Right, good right? answer. The first people here. Columbus, the first mm -hmm. European here. 1492. Uh, almost nobody talks about the Spanish who were in what is now the United States of America before Florida, the English. Florida, New Mexico, California. <laughs> right. That's amazing. <laughs> right. and, and almost 100 years earlier. Almost 100 years before the English arrived, the Spanish were already in Florida and New Mexico and places like that. Uh, the French and the Dutch came before. Not much. Though. Not much before. Uh, the, that, yeah. was, that was pretty... Ten years. Um, one year with the right. Dutch. Then there's another story that gets told of Jamestown, Captain right. Smith and Pocahontas. 1605. That, that right? is 1607. It's the founding of Jamestown. And 1620 yep. is the coming of the pilgrims. And so one of the questions that I ask my students is, why do we tell so many founding stories about the pilgrims? So they're not the first people here. Mm -hmm. They're not the first Europeans here. They're not the first English people here. They're not the first English permanent settlement here. Yeah. They're not the first in so many different they're, they're ways. Not the first they're not really the first. in any way. <laughs> right. But they're first in one way. And you, maybe you're going to tell us what yeah. that is. The reason why we land on them as an origin story is because what that origin story enables us to tell about America. The stories that we By can which tell we about mean America. Today. Exactly. Not so when stories. we ask people, where does America begin? And they say the pilgrims. What they have in mind is a certain narrative of America that stands for certain things. Which are? Freedom, religious mm -hmm. toleration, self-government. And can we just back up and say the Puritans were not... They were, they were in favor of their religion being exactly. tolerated. Yeah. They weren't necessarily in favor of other religions being right. tolerated. I'm, we don't hate the Puritans. We, we do we, not hate the Puritans. We both admire the Puritans deeply. Right. But they really didn't advocate religious toleration. No. They in didn't. our terms at all. No. I think there's a really interesting, Perry Miller tells the story, he says, when I talk about the Puritans in America and people come at me and say, you know, how could they flee England for religious uh, toleration and then not allow others to have their religion? And Perry Miller always said to them, they were perfectly consistent. <laughs> they were consistent. They were perfectly. In England, right. they said, we ought to have the freedom to practice right religion. Right. And in America, they said, you ought to have the freedom only to practice right religion. Right. Like, yeah. In both <clears throat> cases, they were perfectly consistent. It's just that they knew or they thought they knew exactly what right religion was. And that's what God would tolerate. And, and if we can just pause here for a second. Uh, of course, they're not the only ones who think they have religion right. Right. And no, surely we're, not. We're yeah. offended <laughs> that the Puritans think they got it right and other people didn't. Everybody thinks they get it right. 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 I mean, if they thought they had it wrong, they would change. Right. And so it's it's not unusual that they had confidence, especially since they'd studied long and hard, had deep convictions, had formed a community, chosen a life. Right. Um, we, right. we shouldn't be upset that they that they had the strength of their convictions. Right. Right. And I hope most of the people listening to this podcast either have strong convictions or would like to form them. Right. Or to put it right. differently, they were not exceptional in forming a community that allowed only one type of religion uh, they to were, flourish. Well, if we can just take a step <laughs> back for hundreds of years, if you didn't like the religion where you were, you were free to pretend you adopted the religion of the area. Yeah. Or you were free to leave or you're free to stay and make noise and go to jail. Right. Those are, those are some options you had. Right. 
Yeah, so um, can, I'm going to jump to page 272 because I just love the idea that you made us wait 270 pages <laughs> for the answer. And you say this, apparently the English settlers of Jamestown did not count, not to mention all the others who came before. Instead, the, pure, the pilgrims, I said Puritans, but pilgrims is what you wrote here, retold an old story for Reagan, meaning Ronald Reagan, one that separated the motives of America's true founders, you, you uh, italicized true, true founders from the greed and materialism characterizing everyone else. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> so um, the way origin stories work is that they, we align ourselves with those origins. So a different way to put this is if we want to tell a story in which America stands for things that we want it to stand for. We need to find an origin that allows us to tell that story. We've always believed this. Right. Right. And we also want to find an origin that can, in a certain sense, put in the closet the things that we don't want to talk about. Uh, we, and don't, so, we don't deny them, we ignore them. Right. Yeah. Or we just claim that they're not really part of the true America. Mm -hmm. So they're, this is how... They're to the side. They're right. accidents. So if you start with the Pilgrims in 1620 instead of Jamestown in Virginia in 1607, mm -hmm. then you're allowed to sort of ignore the rise of slavery mm -hmm. in American history. Right. And, I, and the whole uh, mercantile impulse, which right. was the core of Jamestown. Right. And you're allowed to say that, yeah, sure, slavery existed, but it wasn't the true America. The mm -hmm. true America spread from these people, right. the, the people that I want to valorize. Uh, that stuff down there, that's not the true America. And we clean that up later. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it tells a story. Can I just pause? It's yeah. not entirely false. It's, it's not entirely false, although it's also, for example, it hides other elements like right. the pilgrims had slaves. <laughs> that, that part gets... We sometimes call them <laughs> bond servants or indentured servants. Yeah, they yeah. had Native American slaves as well. Yeah, they did. And they were, partic they were made most of their money off of the slave trade through merchant ships and so on. Mm -hmm. So... It's not an entirely clean history. No. But what does happen is that we can clean up that history. And, you know, every nation does this. This isn't exceptional to America. If we want to say that we stand for certain principles, which are, in fact, principles worth standing for. Thank you. Then we could say, well, these are the folks who gave us those principles. And in some cases, that's true. Like right. some of these principles did come from the Pilgrims and the Puritans, and they are worth standing for. What the, the troubling part is the way that those histories can then ignore, downplay, shove to the side the parts of American history we don't want to talk about. Which then can hurt us if we don't, you know, as Christians, you and I are Christians. Yes. We believe in repentance. Yes. We believe in restoration. So if you pretend it didn't happen, you can't repent. Right. And you can't try to set it right. Right. That's, is that, is that what you're driving at when you say, and I think you have more than that in mind, but if I, I do, yeah, be a that is definitely one aspect yeah. from a Christian perspective as, you know, yeah. as we're the great nephews and nieces and so yes. forth of the Puritans, uh, we want to be honest about the good and the bad. Let me do an analogy. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been married for over 40 years and you've been married a few years anyway. Long enough to just add my fifteenth anniversary. There you go. Yeah. So you know you can tell the origin story of your marriage and how mm -hmm. you first met, and kind of leave a few things out and mm -hmm. talk about the years of your marriage, and and maybe leave out the part when we were fighting all the time, right? And scratching our heads, saying things like, "What have I done?" Right. <laughs> and and you have you, it's good to face that, right? Not pretend it didn't occur, right? 
But I'll let you. I just wanted to interrupt. Yeah. And say there's there's a a, a, po a positive value in getting our origin stories and our history right that aligns with Christian values. Right. And you know, I should say, you know, the opposite is is also true. If you if you have an origin story based only in um, oppression and persecution, right. and that explains all of American history, that also leaves things out. Uh, and so, you know, right. my, one of the points of my book is how do you do this? is This is a sort of larger intellectual problem. How do you do histories of nations that have so many different origin points? Yes. Because histories are stories, and stories are clean when they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And but, but borders shift. But borders shift. You know, war, and what happens Poland's when you have, borders? Watch it. Right. Watch Serbia, Yugoslavia. Watch the borders move around. Right. And what, what happens when you have lots of beginnings? Right. How do you tell exactly. that story? Yeah. Uh, and when they all influence where you are today. Let me um, let me go to the core concept of the book in its founding with Jesus in Matthew chapter five. So your, your book is called City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism. And City on a Hill comes straight from Jesus, yeah. who said this, you are the light of the world. We know that one you know, really well. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Mm -hmm. Tell us how that idea was appropriated originally by Winthrop. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, this could go for a while, but this give could, us a yeah. quick summary yeah. of how it got lost and found and how maybe especially Perry Miller and Ronald Reagan reintroduced it, Cold War era. Yeah. It was it was repurposed. It went from a theological yeah. statement. I'll, I'll just talk for a minute. Yeah. City on a Hill means that Christians are so moved by God that their lives are a light and it shines and you can't hide that. And that rests then on right doctrine, right faith, and a right life. By which, right, right life, I don't mean rigidly right, but a, a life of love and caring and compassion and honesty and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And that's a very Christian idea. Mm -hmm. And it's been put to secular uses more or less continually for decades in America. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even know City and Hill came from Jesus. Right. I don't know that they, they know it came from the, from the Puritans or Pilgrims. It's right. just... It's now part of our geopolitical identity. Right. So I know you could talk a long time about that. Give us some highlights. Yeah. Let me give you two highlights. Uh, one, which is on the theological side, because this was actually in a weird way, um, one of my favorite chapters to write. What I discovered doing this research is that in the 17th century, City on a Hill was a battle line between yes. Catholics and Protestants. Yes, it was. And the Catholic interpretation of that line is a lot closer to what America has made of that yeah. line today Which is the, than the, the Puritans. Tell yeah. us what the Catholic So line the Catholic was. interpretation of that line was saying, look, Jesus established his followers, his church, as a city on a hill, which means it would always be seen. It would always be a model. You would always know where to look for it. Which and the Catholics means the said, Puritans can't Right. The, the Catholics said, look, the, the only church that has that distinct Distinguishing mark is us. We've, yeah. they all, we're the only ones who've been around since We've the time been visible all along, and you have So they haven't. said, you reformers, you Protestants, where have you been hiding all this time? If you look at Matthew 5, 14, you'll know you're the false church, because where have you been? The, the true church is on a hill. Yeah, they kind of ignored the fact that there was no Catholic church in Mongolia or China. Or right, right. Yeah, that, they kind of left that part right. out. Well, and it's, it's and funny because... And they left out the Greek Orthodox church. Right, there's all kinds of... Yeah, there's, you know, details. Details, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, What's a, a few billion people here or there? Go ahead. So the Puritans had to say, well, what can we do with this line? We can't give it this line to the Catholics. It's combative. Right. So what is the true interpretation of this line that doesn't allow for that? And what they said... 
and which is the, the use Winthrop makes of it in this Puritan sermon that Reagan cites, is more closer to the, the idea that Jesus sets you on a hill and therefore you better behave. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's kind of admonition. Mm-hmm. Because the world is watching you, mm-hmm. you had better not fail. Um, that's, that's a reinterpretation. Yeah. No doubt. And, and which is not entirely false. It's not entirely false. Right. But that was, mo- that was closer. And so you'll see when Winthrop actually uses it in the sermon, he talks in the next line about if we become a failure, we'll be a story to all the world. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so... Did say that again. That was the next line. That was the next line right after City on a Hill. Which we maybe don't necessarily pay attention to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so he gives this sermon. Now, uh, the, I think the larger narrative of the book is the fact that he gives this sermon in which this is the, the first Puritan governor of New England. Um, and, and, and a good man. And a good man. And yeah. a wise John man. Yeah. Yep. Right. Uh, and he gives a sermon uh, sometime right before they arrive in which he says, we shall be as a city upon a hill. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan uses this and others. And now it's a part You're of You're going to do Perry Miller for a second. Yeah. Yeah, so so what happens first? You do whatever order you want, but yeah, I want to get Perry Miller. Uh, that here. Perry Miller is amazing. Okay, so what happens first is that no Puritans make note of this sermon. So this sermon, which now is found in every anthology, every intellectual history of America, and so on, was in its own day completely ignored, never printed, never published. Nobody knew it existed until some uh, until intrepid 200 historians years later, somebody yep. found it in an archive. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then they started to publish it and produce it and 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 make a, a story. So part of the idea of the book is how do these origin stories emerge? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we turn a sermon that nobody seemed to have noticed into the founding sermon of America? This podcast is a production of the Center of Faith and Work in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. If you're enjoying this conversation, you know the drill. Please rate this podcast and subscribe to it. And visit our workingwithdan.org site to get updates on new episodes, explore old episodes, hear clips from lectures on work, and enter to win our giveaways. Before we jump back into this episode, I have to say I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. Abram has done his research with skill and contagious enthusiasm for his topic. You probably don't get to chase down formative concepts as Abram does, but what do you get to pursue? And where might you have contagious enthusiasm that impels you to work hard and with delight? So just to make this clear, that means it wasn't the founding sermon right. of America. Right. That maybe people, you know, maybe 50 people heard it. Right. And liked it. Right. And that's probably it. Like, that's probably a, like it. most sermons. Yeah. And then it, so it was reinterpreted a couple hundred years later and even more 300 years later. And it's not like there weren't chances to talk about it. There were biographies of Winthrop written Mm -hmm. that don't mention him delivering it. Winthrop was keeping a journal. He doesn't mention having given it. So so why did Perry Miller come to use it? So Perry Miller, he's this... um, So first of all, who Perry Miller was. He was a scholar at Harvard. He was one of the first professors, full professors of American literature at Harvard. Uh, He had a key... Give us his dates roughly. uh, He was at Harvard from 1931. He died in 1963, shortly Mm -hmm. after Kennedy, partly because of Kennedy. Uh, And so he was at Harvard for 30 years. And he's the key figure of the 20th century who turns the Puritans into an intellectual topic in America. Um, And so one of his roles, because of the years in which he worked, there was developing this new discipline of American studies, which was trying to say, hey... We've got our own rich culture, our own rich set of authors, our own particular distinguishing marks. We're not beholden to the Europeans. Right. 
Right. So let's pull out what those are. And Perry Miller's answer to what those were was the Puritans. The Puritans mm -hmm. made us what we are today. Mm -hmm. That was his answer, basically. Uh, and as he's going through and sort of building this argument, he, in a certain sense, stumbles across this sermon again. And he, in the 1940s and 50s, starts to say again and again, this is the key sermon. This is the, this is the moment when America truly begins. But this partly has to do with uh, the aftermath, the political, political, economic right. aftermath of World War II, the rise of communism. Right. And so this is uh, an intellectual tool, maybe even a weapon right. at the time. Well, Perry Miller was an atheist. He had a lot of respect for the Puritans. He, did, yes. he was really drawn to them, but he was an atheist. And, uh, and for him, what really mattered was what set America apart. Mm -hmm. And he said, this sermon and the Puritans uh, set and America so? apart. And what he wanted to get at, uh, so in the Cold War, you get this binary between the Soviet Union and the United States. And part of the result of that binary, the Soviet Union stands for atheism and communism. And therefore, the United States stands for not just democracy, but Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so you start to get this sense in which we are the, 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 the leaders of the free world. We need to stand for that. And this sermon becomes the way to tout that we have always stood for that, that we right. are the city on a hill. What's super and, and interesting, the, if I can just yeah. interrupt again, is that the communists are the oppressors, right? And we're freedom loving. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, I put my story into this. So my name, Doriani, is is an opera name. It's not my real name, and my my name should be Chuskovsky. My family, my grandfather, the singer, visited Russia with Russian roots, and they said, "Welcome back, comrades," and kept them for twelve years. Mm. Mm. So um, the Russians could be oppressors. Oh, yeah. yeah, <laughs> and yeah. In fact, very often were oppressors. And it, it was good to battle communism. Yes, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I think. But uh, that doesn't mean America is always perfect. They're dark and we're always light. Sure. Which yeah, is absolutely. What you're at right yeah, now. absolutely. And what's more interesting to me, and actually one of the reasons why I started writing this book, is because one of the things you discover in the history of this sermon and in the history of this phrase is that up until about the Cold War, this phrase was a phrase of the church. Right. And you can tell this because you could search databases for this phrase in the 1900, or 1800s and mm -hmm. earlier. And almost it, there's a, it shows up a lot because it's in the Bible. It's all it's over Christian the place. It's, it's Christian literature. It's Christian literature, right? Great statements, and So actually. it's not absent from right. American culture, but wherever it appears in American culture, what it is talking about is the church. The church right. is the city on a hill. Pastors are the city on a hill. D disciples, Christians, clergymen, these are the things that are the city on a hill. Even, even Christian schools, we right. might say. Yep. And by the time you get to the end of the 20th century, America, the United States, is the city on a hill. It's totally so, secularized. And so in a very clear way, you can see the nation taking over the the slogan of the church. So I, I'm going to give you my summary of, you know, I read, you lived and breathed your book for several years. Yeah. I read your book. Yeah. But um, it seemed to me that in part, the value was to say we're not materialists. Yes. We are, we did not come to the new world to get rich. And to be straight, the Spanish, um, you know, there's some shocking statements of and the Portuguese, you know, yeah. came to get gold and silver, and they say so. Not, they don't all. I mean, there right. were there were Spanish and Portuguese people who hated what the right. Spaniards and Portuguese people were doing. But there was a um, in the French and the Southern English in Virginia, there was a um, a monetary aim mm -hmm. or a financial aim 
that was there with the Puritans. You got to make a living. And so it's not entirely, uh, it's not entirely uh, fanciful to connect sort of the moral side of the Puritans yeah. and pilgrims with yeah. some moral aspirations of America. Yeah, uh, and that was partly what Perry Miller was trying to get yeah. at. He, he was That's very what I concerned. took you to say. Anyway, yeah. That I mean, Perry Miller, Miller was squeezing things, but not absurdly. Right. So one right. of the things, and this Perry Miller was not alone at in thinking this. You know, following World War II, America really rose to power in a new way. And part of its rise to power was that it was not decimated in the same way by World War II as, you know, all these European countries were and so on. So suddenly it becomes one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And there's a whole cadre of scholars, Perry Miller among them, who say, wait, wait, wait a second. We're not just materialists. <laughs> we're not just materialists. We can't just be about individual wealth and pleasure. More cars, bigger More houses. cars, more refrigerators. There's more to America than that. Right. So how do we get this nation to stand for something that isn't just material gain? Mm -hmm. And Perry Miller tried to find the answer to that in the Puritans, who he said did not come from material gain. Material gain was a byproduct of the reason why they came. Mm -hmm. uh, do, and do you buy that or not? Somewhat, maybe. I buy it somewhat. I think there's... You know, there's mixed motives to all these these things. Everything we do. Yeah. I mean, you do have clear lines from Winthrop saying, hey, England is too full. Let's go to America. Mm -hmm. There's too many people here and you can't make. But one of the reasons he wanted to go was because he, what he said was super interesting. You can't make a living anymore except by cheating your neighbor. And so he said, let's go spread out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and make an honest living. Right. And so there's economic motive there, but there's also moral at least in Winthrop's mind, moral motive there for, for going. And let's just make sure the Mayflower had lots of non-Christians on board. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they knew they were coming for an organization that had Christian roots and right. convictions. They knew the leaders would be Christians. Right. Um, I don't know if you know, what, what are the numbers? It was, you know. So the Mayflower had 100, 102 passengers, and know. then half about half of them, I think, were, were pilgrims um, who were separatists, and then half of them were called strangers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh who came for other reasons who came for other reasons seek their fortune right right but part of it was i mean if you're going to start a colony you need people who do certain tasks <laughs> yes. so if you can't yes. find a christian who does that task you need somebody who does yeah, that yeah you need task. a community right um can we talk about ronald reagan yeah and how he um took one more big step yeah to secularize city on a hill yeah, I mean, so Reagan is super interesting because um, he's the moment when this phrase really does truly explode. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not the first president to use the first president to use Winthrop and this phrase to talk about America is JFK. Um, and after him, others use it a little bit, but not much. But by the time you get to Reagan in the mid 70s and his rise to power, um, he is starting to make this the, the foundational statement of America. And as he does so, part of what he's doing is saying that, in a certain sense, we did come, or we are great because of our material uh, possessions. And you can look at some of his speeches that, that, that do precisely the thing of saying, we've got more cars, we've got more TVs, we've got... And so there is a weird way in which uh, Perry Miller made this sermon foundational to America and, and used it to speak out against materialism. 
And then Reagan is the one who popularized it and used it to speak up for not materialism per se, but for the good of material goods. <laughs> well, let me let me tweak that in two ways. Yeah. Uh, the first is maybe the link between freedom in general, yeah. which for Reagan and many other people means political freedom and economic freedom. And there are some connections sure, between absolutely. political and economic yep. freedom. So if you set people free, one right. of the results will be they'll be more productive. Right. You know, you don't take away their money with taxes and regulations. Right. And, and again, as always, there's some truth to that. Right. And so he conflated, we might say, um, well, he, he elided, I'll say, religious freedom and moved it over to political freedom and then economic right. freedom and then prosperity. Right. But and of course, he's anti-communist to the core. Right, and the communists, part of the reason, you know, yeah. communism didn't work as an economic system. And so he was right. unafraid to say that. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, one of the things I trace in this book that, I was, that was very fun to just kind of research and write about was all the different stories about America that get tied to a Puritan origin. Mm -hmm. You can find any story about America and say it started with the Puritans. You could say we are, as, as, did, as was said in the early 1900s, people said, America is no good at the arts. We're terrible. We're, you know, we have no society, no culture. And that's because of the Puritans, because they were business minded and, and mm -hmm. too frugal. And, yeah, yeah. and other people come along and say they weren't business minded. It wasn't about money at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and you can neither one is true. Right. And so you get all these traditions and histories of America that get spun. And what's amazing is how many of them lay their source at the Puritans. Well, of course, the Puritans were writers and right. they were publishers. And so if you read 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 pages of Puritans, right. you're going to find a lot of ideas. You are. <laughs> you you could find almost anything. I could read nothing but Puritan text for the rest of my life and not get through what remains from Puritan culture. Yeah. They were writers. They were publishers. <laughs> they wrote everything down. Yeah. That's true. Hey, uh, I've really enjoyed this a lot. We're going to go to a couple of uh, other questions. I sure. want to ask people... Uh, some rapid fire questions at the end, but I want to ask you about your calling. So you're you're a good teacher. I've heard you teach. You're a good teacher. Well, thanks. Um, you're welcome. It's I'm, it's it's not a compliment. It's accuracy. <laughs> you're a good teacher. That's that's a that's not flattery. That's that's factual. But you're you probably spend most of your time doing research mm -hmm. and writing. Just uh, talk to us about that. Why why do people? You know, for you maybe publishing is more important than teaching. Give us mm -hmm. one or two minutes on the connection between teaching and writing and what it's like to be a, a professor at a major university. So let me let me talk about the research first, because some people talk, you know, the, the first book I wrote is a book primarily for scholars. Um, it will have a, re it has the readership that it needs, which is among mm -hmm. scholars, among people right. who study the Puritans. The second book is for a broader audience. And pe some people say, why do you spend so many years, really, writing a book that a handful, you know, of scholars, fellow scholars. Yeah, under 2,000. Right. Under right. 2,000 are yeah. going to read. And uh, my go-to image for this is that book, The Giver by Lois Lowry. I don't know if you know this. I don't it know. It is a, just a wonderful book. But basically, um, in this community, uh, all the memories are kept by a memory keeper. And the community realizes that they need those memories even if they don't want access to those memories, even if they don't want to keep them themselves, they want right. somebody to keep them. And I think of scholars very often as the memory keepers. Mm -hmm. We write books- Memory improvers, we might yeah, say. Yeah, right. Um, we write books that not necessarily everybody's going to read, but once the books are written, they can read them. And they're Well, and kept. you influence influencers, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. 
So that's that is one way. And then of course these these broader intellectual books that do have a broader audience are meant to be more influential to show people the way that these ideas still matter um, and still affect people's lives. And really, in my politicians could pick up this book and profit from it. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. yeah. The the folks I cite in that book at the end who use this phrase, it's not partisan. I mean, these kinds of stories are Obama's telling these stories right. and Bush is telling these stories. Right. All it's going back and forth. Right. So anyway, so there's there's that side of things. And then the teaching side of things is just, I mean, I love teaching. But uh, but there you have sort of this direct engagement with people right. to to challenge them. And what I do in my classes, and this is just my model, but I tell students, for example, in my course on American exceptionalism, I, I have a politics, I do, but if I teach this course right, you won't know what they are, uh, but you will think that they're the opposite of yours. Because <laughs> Be- you make everybody Because I try to challenge everybody's yeah. point of view, and right. that forces you to think through what your position entails and whether it has any support. Mm-hmm. Which you, and you challenge me because I forgot to say that some Puritans had slaves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we stress that, you know, they were mostly indentured servants, and which is tr- you know, maybe true. You know, we stress that side of it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we can excuse it in all kinds of ways. Slaveholding was widespread, but not a, it's not true that everybody had slaves. Right. By any means. Right. So, yeah, good. Thank you for that. Okay, can I uh, ask you my rapid-fire questions? Oh, sure. Yeah. Or were you done answering the question? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good enough? All right, so rapid-fire questions. What do you do? to play or relax other than working all the time instead of spending seven years writing a book you spend six years and ten months and what else do you do ha i love golf uh really you don't strike me as a golfer yeah i mean i don't i I would be it would be accurate to say that i don't strike you as a good golfer (laughs) (laughs) okay you enjoy golf i do enjoy golf i mean this will sound um dumb but i read i love reading and i don't get as much a chance as you might think to read things that are not teaching or writing about things right yeah the other thing i'm gonna give you one ready the color of water yeah oh yeah no i haven't read it i need oh my goodness what a great book yeah you'll enjoy it you'll laugh out loud and the, and the James one, McBride, for what it's worth, out <laughs> yeah. there, folks. Uh, the one other thing I need, I, I do right now that I just love is um, at, at 40 years old, I started taking piano lessons again. <sighs> and so I practice the piano every day and take piano That's lessons. Wonderful. Uh, That's wonderful. Uh, putting practical considerations aside, what would you do for one year? If you just, you know, money's no object, you can walk back to your job, what would you do for one year? You know, you know, my answers are so boring. But Just give me one. I would read. I would read in a beautiful place all by myself. Yeah. So I have told my wife that, you know, that there are times in my life with, um, if I hadn't married her, I might be a monk. Um, and um, I, I do love solitude and I do love reading and, uh, and, uh, and I don't get enough of either. Mm. Uh, I mean, I love my family, so I don't of want more. Course, of, of, of course, of course you do. Uh, if you were talking to a talented newcomer, yeah, intellectual history, American literature, you can decide writing. Mm-hmm. What would you most want to say? You're on an elevator. It's not real fast. You're going from the first floor to the twentieth. Yeah. What would you say? Well, I have loads of advice about pursuing that as a career. Mm. Um, and as long as you're getting paid to do what you love and making a living doing it, um, then do it. Yeah. But as soon as that stops being the case, there are other paths to take and other careers out there. Mm. So uh, I, I think all those things are worth it. 
I think, you know, you should never be in a graduate program, for example, that you would pay to go to mm -hmm. uh, for these things right. uh, or incur debt for them. But as long as you're you're making ends meet and you're having the, the chance to, to read intellectual history, to do American literature, to write the things you want to write. If you I love mean, your topic, in other words. If you love your topic. And love teaching it and conveying the information. Good. Uh, so in other words, for a year, you would do exactly what you're doing right now. <laughs> no, right no, now. No, it's a good answer. Right now, right I now, am but... on endless meetings and committees and administrative duties. <laughs> oh, you just... That would cease. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Okay, right. That's the job everybody wants. Uh, what do people get wrong about your work? Where, how do you uh, take out the garbage? Yeah, I think that with the, especially with the book I wrote, I can easily get pinned for left further left than I am or get pinned for further right than I am, mm. uh, depending upon the viewpoint of the person reading and what they want to see in the work if, that if I they're write. left, they see you as right. And, I mean, I have a passage yeah. in there where I talk about how there are very, very good scholars of the Puritans and the Pilgrims, and there are also lots of writings about them that either want to demonize them to mm -hmm. no end or right. praise them to no end, right. and both are wrong. Yeah. And so how do you cut a middle ground that humanizes them? And, right. and acknowledges both ends of the spectrum. And that's true of all, all Christian histories or secular histories are tempted to do that. I mean, Calvin is made into a saint. I mean, he was a, a complete jerk early in his life. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was given 48 hours to get out of town yeah. at one point because he was so foolish and rash. Yeah. And of course, you know, he became a better person, but yeah. that's another story. All right, uh, you read widely. What one book would you recommend to our readers? Maybe one that would help us understand literature, or maybe one that would help us understand the Puritans, other than your two books about the Puritans. Well, the the the, the go-to novel for me for the last you know twenty years has been Gilead. Mm, yeah, fantastic. Which I teach over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, the other the other book I, I so I teach a freshman course on religion and literature and the first three novels we read are Gilead the Power and the Glory mm -hmm. and Go Tell It on the Mountain and I think those yeah, three I'm ready books, for your class I've read all three <laughs> those three books back to back to back are amazing and they also introduce Reformed Protestantism Catholicism and Black Pentecostalism yeah. And for an audience that I often have that doesn't know very much about religion at all, right. to show them these three perspectives and to say, these are all Christians mm -hmm. and all Christian writers. Well, James Baldwin left the church, but um, that they're all from a Christian point of view. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's sort of saying, now when you think the word Christian, you've got to understand there's variety. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, right, very Wide good. variety. Yeah, that's probably a, a great educational decision. Abram, it's been a delight to have you here to converse with you freely for a while. Yes. And I wholeheartedly recommend, especially for people like intellectual history, with a detective side to it, really. It's, it's a detective story at times. See the on a Hill, History of America, A History of American Exceptionalism. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to today's guest, Abram Van Engen. Though we didn't discuss it at length on this episode, Abram has an excellent podcast of his own called Poetry for All. I've enjoyed his talks on poetry, and you can find a link to his podcast in the show notes for this episode, or visit us at workingwithdan.org for more information. At our website, you can explore archives of old episodes, subscribe to receive updates on new episodes, receive giveaways, and find bonus content. 
This podcast is a production of the Center for Faith and Work in partnership with the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And one more time, I'm Dan Doriani, reminding you to work hard, make a difference, and from time to time, take a break.